in Ruth again today, so if you have a Bible, turn with me there. And any kids headed to Gospel Project, now's your time. Hope you have a good time together. If uh, you are just joining us today for the first time, we at Church on Mill believe that God speaks through His book, that the Bible isn't simply that God spoke in the past, but He remains and continues to speak. And so our habit each week is to get together, open the Scriptures, read the next passage of the book we're going through, and seek to understand what it means. So you're coming midway through a story. I'd encourage you to check it out uh, later today. Read Ruth 1 and 2 to get the backstory to what we'll be talking about today. If you don't have a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, it should be one, and we are on page 128 in those chair Bibles. Just maybe a sentence or two in terms of review. Uh, We saw last week in Ruth 2 that God showed kindness to Naomi and Ruth. He gave them somewhere to get food from and protection. And so at the end of what was a very difficult two chapters, there is a break in the sorrow. There is a moment of hope. There is the possibility that maybe things will get better. And today we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3, which is one of the single strangest chapters in the entire Bible. And it's for that reason we've asked Tim Hinnigan if he would come and read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may dwell in you? Is not Boaz our relative with those young women you were? See, he is widowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash yourself and anoint yourself and put a cloak on and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you have said, I will do. So she went down to the thrashing floor, did just what her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz was eating and drunk and his and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet. At midnight, he was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman laid at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you have asked. For all fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet... There is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and if in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. 
let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the woman came to the thrashing floor. And he said, bring your garment that you are wearing and hold it out. She held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the men had all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thank you, Tim. Would you thank him? <clears throat> Ruth chapter 3 is the record of Naomi's daring scheme to secure a husband for Ruth. Naomi longed that Ruth would be provided for, that her needs would be met, and the family line would continue. And so, as you heard read, Ruth followed Naomi's instructions and daringly expressed her interest in being Boaz's wife. That's Ruth chapter 3. Let's close this sermon in prayer. <laughs> Actually, we should probably say a little more. Some big questions get raised from this text. So let's study together in order that the Lord would resolve what are perhaps some troublesome questions in your mind. But more importantly, may the Lord also answer the important questions that may not be coming to mind. When we study historical narrative in the Bible, it's important that we recognize we're not reading stale history. We're not reading merely the account of something that happened. We have that, but we have more than that. You see, historical narrative isn't simply recounting for us an event, but rather it's giving us the biblical author's authoritative interpretation of what that event means. You see, God is a God who speaks through history. And history isn't happenstance. It is rather filled with evidences of his providence. And so what we have in Ruth chapter 3 is just like every other historical narrative in the Bible. Real people, real events, real places, but not only that. We have history recorded to communicate to us something of theological significance about who God is and what God's been up to. Biblical narrative is God speaking through what has happened. And what has happened, therefore, carries with it significance. Now, narrative works very differently than other parts of your Bible. Think, for example, about the New Testament letters, or what are sometimes called the epistles. These are letters written by an individual to another individual or a whole church. And the speech is often very direct. Narrative doesn't work that way. Narrative is, is most often Indirect. So some of us like more of the one than more of the other. 
And so we try faithfully here to work our way through all different kinds of Scripture. But when we come to narrative, we have to do some extra work that's different than what we would do in an epistle. Because what an epistle states directly, God has written a narrative to say indirectly. So consequently, what we have here is a little more complex than, than just this. Naomi did A, and it's recorded in the Bible, so the, you should do the same. Or Ruth did B, and it's recorded in your Bible, and that, therefore, is the best way now to go find a mate. Instead, what we have in narrative is A happened, and B, God is saying this through it. Very, very important. Now, that's great news for a passage like this. Single ladies, you can take a deep breath and breathe out relief. God is not telling you if you need a mate to go find a guy and uncover his feet and lay down and wait. Parents in the room, you're not being told by God to concoct a risky plan and be the one that determines your spouse's, your kid's spouse. And guys, sorry, this isn't a promise that if you work hard and buy a field and get employees, then a really wonderful lady is going to come pledge herself to you. That's not what narrative is for. That's not what narrative does. It tells us what happened in order that God would tell us something of theological significance. So if that's not what it says, that's not what it means, then what does this odd text intend to communicate to us? I hope you'll labor with me for the next 35 minutes or so, and we'll seek to uncover, pun intended, that. Uh, Naomi's scheme in verses 1 to 4 is simultaneously both sweet and rather shocking. Let's start with sweet. It seems that Naomi had noble motive. Look at verse 1. It lays out for us what she was seeking to do. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, and here's the motive, Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi, it's clear, believed Ruth would be better off remarrying. You see, Ruth had been married to her son, and he had died. And she had moved from her homeland, pledged herself to her mother-in-law, and taken on her people and her God. And yet Naomi knew this is a young woman with no kids. She would be better off marrying. Now in this culture, this is somewhere around 3,000 years ago, In this culture, even though Ruth's kitchen pantry was now stocked full of food, they were no longer on the brink of starvation. They had somewhere to live. They were getting by okay. She still needed the protection, security, and ongoing provision that a good man would provide. Furthermore, Ruth's long-term well-being ordinarily in this period of time, was connected to the presence or absence of children. 
See, there was no social security. There was no, the state will take care of you when you're old. Your kids did it. And so because she had no children, her future was in many ways in peril. Producing an heir was crucial. Naomi knew well-being, joy, and the removal of social reproach hung in the balance for Ruth because Ruth needed a spouse. Now, if you're like me, that raises all kinds of questions about today. In the United States of America, there are now more single people than there are married. In Naomi's day, marriage was assumed. In our day, it is increasingly delayed, avoided, ignored, and perceived even as unnecessary. Church, we would do well to recover God's view of marriage. It's a view that is not culture-specific. It is a view that is timeless. According to God, marriage is a good gift for many people to display the love and sacrifice of Christ for His church. It's also the biblical and best context for raising healthy kids. And yet, while marriage is extremely important... It's not for everyone. Single men and women hearing this message today, you are not incomplete until you are married. You are not half of a person. You are not less valuable in the church or without. There is no shame in singleness. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians that Singleness may, in fact, be a gift God has given you, that through that gift you might serve Him and show His life in yours with particular intensity. Now, whether married or single, we can do a lot to help each other live well in a state of contentment with who we have or don't have. Some of you this morning have already been to our singleness connection class that met at the previous hour. If you didn't go and you're not committed in some other way, I'd encourage you next week, come a little earlier, come at 9.30. We're trying to help each other see whether we're married or single, how we can best help each other. So in a nutshell, that's God's view of marriage. It's an important, good gift for many, but it's not essential for all nor necessary for meaning or significance. So in this way, I think Naomi's desire for Ruth is sweet. She wanted the very best for her. But clearly, from even a cursory reading of the passage, Naomi's actions are also rather shocking. There is in Naomi's suggestions the hints, the overtones of a scheme of a person who had regained her confidence in God and was now in many ways seeking to follow him again, but that hope had only recently been recovered. Maybe you remember back in Ruth 1 after Naomi's husband died and her oldest son died and her second and final son died that she found herself hardened and embittered by the circumstances of her life. It's understandable. And yet, while she 
knew God existed and believed in God and intended to follow God, it seems implicit in the narrative that she, for a period of time, did not like God. She had lost hope in God. But by the time we reach the end of Ruth 2, Naomi's heart had been encouraged because she saw new ways in which God was providing And yet, so often when we wander from God and then return, we will struggle to follow Him rightly again. For much of Ruth 1 and 2, Naomi was bitter and full of despair. While she'd recovered that despair, she had not yet been walking fully in the ways of wisdom. You see, Ruth had been coming home and communicating how great Boaz had been and all the provisions that he had given. And it didn't take long for a light bulb to go off for Naomi. And pretty soon an an idea was in the incubator, if you will. And then it hatched. Maybe, maybe Boaz would take on Ruth. Maybe God would put these two together. Maybe this would be the means through which her future could be secured. Now, those are good and right desires. Perhaps even she thought, my husband's name will be carried on through the family. And who knows what God might do in that way. But it seems that while Naomi's desires were good, her motives were good, She wouldn't wait for God to providentially bring this about. Instead, she climbs from the passenger seat into the driver's seat. She moved God over to the passenger seat, and she said, I've got this one. I'll steer the way. I'll orchestrate the circumstances through which the proposal will come about. Here's essentially what Naomi said. Ruth. Get on your prom dress. Get all your stink off. Anoint yourself with perfume. Look the very best you can. And when Boaz is full and exhausted and he's had some strong drink and he's down for the night, then you sneak up, uncover his feet, and lay there. He'll wake up and he'll tell you what to do. That's strange. Now, while there's no reason to think that Naomi was giving Ruth lessons in seduction, there is the most unusual strategy that she's describing. While her idea was a good one, maybe this will be a mate her foolish attempt of how to bring it about is not above board. In Ruth 1, Ruth chapter 1, Naomi told Ruth, may God give you rest with a new husband. But here in Ruth chapter 3, it seems Naomi thinks, I'll be able to provide you rest. Friends, can you identify with that? Have there been times in which there was something that you 
thought to be right. There was no reason to think it wasn't admirable or even something God might do. And yet you took control of the situation yourself. This could have easily backfired. I would have loved to have been inside Ruth's mind as she heard Naomi laying out this plan. Naomi? Seriously? Naomi, I don't even like feet. Naomi, he's a lot older than me. And yet, Ruth submitted to Naomi's instructions. Now, passage doesn't tell us, did Boaz have any interest in Ruth already? Had Ruth been caught by Boaz's generosity? Were they just waiting for Cupid? The, the passage gives us no indication either way. We're simply not told. And then as we heard the passage read, Ruth got ready. And under the cover of darkness, she made her way to the threshing floor. Last night in our gospel community, uh, somebody said, what in the world is that? Well, remember, this is roughly 3,000 years ago. There are no modern farming techniques and equipment. This is all manual labor. This is harvesting the crop by hand, bringing that crop to the threshing floor, which was a, a large, flat, stone area in which you would beat out your crop. And the edible part from the inedible part would be separated. And then you'd take a winnowing fork and you'd throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow away the chaff and the crop would remain. Now, why was he there overnight? Great question. He was there because the work took all day and they were exhausted. And then at the end of daylight, you're left there with a huge heap of grain. And the last thing you'd want is somebody to come along and steal your huge heap of grain overnight. And so you'd quite literally lay down by your crop, and then in the morning, you'd carry it home. And that's where Ruth would go to find Boaz. Once he was asleep, Ruth snuck up on him, uncovered his feet, which is a signal of her willingness to be married. And then in humility, she lay down. Now, my favorite word in the entire passage is verse, in verse 8. It's this word, startled. It says that Boaz was startled. Well, no duh, he's startled. He was cold. She took his covers. This is where the battle for the blanket began. Right here in Ruth chapter 3. In the, the darkness, Boaz woke up. And my second favorite word, behold, there's a woman laying there. Now, guys, don't pretend you've never dreamed of something like that happening. But he says, who are you? It's so dark he can't even see her. Ruth says, it's me. And then I like to imagine her heart is beating out of her chest. Not so much because she's emotionally caught up in love for this man, like we might think of it. 
But in this moment of great risk, what will he say? Everything could fall apart. Everything. What would happen as Boaz, perhaps just for a moment, groggily rubs his eyes and wonders what is to be made of this? In the quietness of that moment is a huge risk. And here's the risk. Will the providence of God, the plan of God, to provide a descendant, to provide a descendant who would become the king of Israel, be spoiled by Naomi's pushy plan? Or will God choose to work providentially through these well-intended but perhaps foolish behaviors. That's what hung in the balance. You see, God's plan had been that through this family would come a king named King David and that God would make a promise to King David that he would reign forever, that his descendants, from his descendants would come a king who would be the king of God's people and reign for all eternity. But as Boaz wonders, why is this woman here and what has she come to do? We're left to question. Is it possible that our decisions can spoil the plans of God? Can the providence of God be interrupted by our foolishness? Well, in Ruth chapter 2, we were told that Ruth set out to work in order to provide food for the family, and that her chance chanced to fall upon the field of Boaz. It's incredibly clunky language, but it means that what seemed like mere coincidence, what seemed like luck, was in fact God seeing that she would go to the one field where Boaz would eventually be. And that God therefore works through what even seems like our own independent, sheer, providentially lucky decisions. That there's not chance, that life's not a fortune cookie, that God is ruling and reigning and working through all things. But here in Ruth chapter 3, we're left wondering, does the providence of God get interrupted by the plans of people? Well, as you heard read, Boaz says yes. Not yes, you can interrupt God's plan, but yes, I will take you in marriage. Why? Why would he say that? Well, verse 9 tells us. Look there with me. He, this is Boaz, says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, friends, Ruth is not attempting to arouse Boaz. She's not using her body to tempt or her intelligence to manipulate. You see, she goes beyond what Naomi told her to do. Did you catch that? Naomi said, you go, you uncover, you lay down, and then he'll tell you what to do. But Ruth, because she's a woman of character, 
because she wants her intentions to be clear. Before Boaz has any time to think evil thoughts, she says, I am here because I want to ask you to be my husband. You see, she wanted marriage, not a one-night stand. She is saying, in essence, will you be the one through whom God will care for me? Boaz is clearly surprised, but astonishingly, he says, yes. I think especially today, it's important to mention that it wasn't Ruth's looks that persuaded Boaz. She might have been incredibly attractive, or perhaps less so, but her looks were not the persuasive point. Friends, it was her character, not her curves, that convinced him. You see, down in verse 11, Boaz says that Ruth is a worthy woman. She's a worthy woman. The same word is used in Proverbs 31, verse 10. In the Hebrew Bible, you read through Proverbs, you get to Proverbs 31, you read Proverbs 31, and guess what's next? Ruth. And in Ruth, we read the same word. It says, an excellent or a worthy wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Boaz is saying, you are that kind of person. You are a Proverbs 31 woman. You are a woman of character. I've seen your commitment to Naomi. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your love and character and your fidelity towards God. It's your character that is persuasive to me. What a timely lesson for us. Church, Ruth chapter 3 is not in the Bible to say here are five steps from introduction to intercourse. The Bible's attempt is not to instruct us on dating and courtship from this chapter. And yet, Boaz's assessment of Ruth's character is in fact instructive with reference to deciding whom you ought to marry, if anyone at all. You see, back in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, when Boaz was first introduced, Boaz was called what? A worthy man. Same word. The author is very intentionally telling us, Boaz is a man of godly character. He loves God. He works hard, he's dignified, he obeys the law by God's grace. He is a man who is a worthy man. Ruth, by God's grace, is becoming the same thing. Friends, the marriages God blesses, the marriages that make it, the husbands and wives who not only start compatible but maintain that compatibility through all the trials and hardships of life. The godly couples who display Christ in the church in their relationship, these are the marriages where a man and a woman become a husband and a wife, and by God's grace, they continue to labor at being worthy people. It takes two. 
People, are, people who are committed to being men and women of God. People who love God first and foremost. People who obey Him above all else. People who show said loving kindness to each other because they've already found that loving kindness from God. People who show godly character not only in the middle of the day when everybody's watching, but in the middle of the night when it seems that no one's watching. Friend, if you are here today and you are single and you'd like to be married someday, I want to encourage you not to obsess on finding a mate, but by God's power to set your affections on becoming a worthy man and a worthy woman. If you do that, and if God has marriage in mind for you, you can trust Him providentially to bring you a worthy man or a worthy woman. Give yourself not to the idol of marriage, but to the goodness and kindness and power of God. Friends, Boaz says he's willing to become Ruth's husband. Now, if this were Hollywood, we know what would have happened next. But this isn't Hollywood. And not only is it Hollywood, we find a completely unexpected, strange problem. There's a new conflict that comes into play. You see, verse 12 indicates that there is someone who is a closer relative. Now, before you get really weirded out by that, let me take a moment to explain. In the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're told that under the Old Testament law, if a man and a woman marry and they don't have a child, particularly a male child, and the husband dies and the wife is left completely alone, then if that husband had brothers, then one of them is to propose and marry her. Why? In order to take care of her, to provide for her, to carry on the family name. Now, as really weird and maybe gross as that might seem to us, that was the law. That was the custom of the day. And so Boaz is saying, I'm willing, but there's somebody who's closer in the family line than me. Now, who was it? Well, we don't know. It wasn't Ruth's former husband's brother because he was dead. But somewhere between him and the brother, there is somebody else. The text doesn't tell us. Imagine what Ruth must have felt. She has taken this enormous risk. Boaz has said, okay. And then the other shoe drops. Another guy who you don't know, he's actually closer, and if he says yes, then you've got to go with him. But if he doesn't, then great. This is like unimaginable to me. But Boaz commits. Boaz is a man of honor. He's saying, in honor of the World Series, we could put it this way, he's saying, um, I'm actually on deck Somebody else is already up at the plate. And if he'll hit, then he's got to be the one. But if he passes, I will give myself to you. And so the book, 
At this point, the end of chapter 3 ends with this big, major, unanswered, massive question. Here's the question. Will God intervene for Boaz, through Boaz, for Naomi, through Naomi, yet again? Will the family line continue through Boaz? Or will Naomi's risky plan result in disaster for Ruth? Can the providence of God be foiled by the plans of people? You'll have to come back next week. <laughs> while, we ate, while we wait for the answer, will you think with me about one additional idea conveyed in this text? Look at verse 9 again. The second half. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Friends, when we understand that line in light of the whole Bible, then what we see is that Ruth asked Boaz to be a small representation of what we all need. You see, remember where we started. We said that Historical narrative is a chosen genre through which God conveys meaning of theological significance through events that actually happened. So here's the larger point being made. We would put it this way. God, would you spread your protective, providing, grace-filled wings over us in Christ, for he is our Redeemer. You see, friends, rightly, we are all under the judgment of God. We are outside of the protection and the provision and the grace and the kindness of God. All people everywhere deserve just punishment. We have rejected the king. We have resisted the creator. We have chosen to be our own little gods. But what Boaz committed to be to Ruth in her singleness, Jesus has committed to all who come to him to be in our salvation. You see, God himself came in Jesus Christ as the ultimate act of saving love. Think of it this way. God, Jesus, stretched out not metaphorical wings, but actual arms. And as those arms were nailed to the cross outside the city of Jerusalem in the first century, the love, the extension, the provision, the protection of God was open to all who would come to him. In those arms outstretched, holding Jesus on the cross where he hung and died, the ultimate love of God was shown. In those arms, we find the love that will always endure. When husband and wife make their vows, they say what? Tell death do us part. But friends, not even death separates us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boaz in Ruth chapter 3 is a tiny picture pointing forward to the better Boaz, Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, what we have is actually the 
the pre-enactment, the foretelling of what would come in the New Testament. It is as though God scattered seed in the actual embedded in the events of real people's lives. And for a thousand years, he'd been watering that until Christ came that we might see a picture of his love and grace. God stretched out his protective wings in the arms of Christ. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, are you aware today of how deeply God loves you? Non-Christian, you can come to Jesus today by admitting you have lived life apart from him, confessing your belief in him, turning over the reins, as it were, to God to be in charge, turning from sin and turning to the Savior. Because this Jesus rescues not merely Ruth from her singleness, but all who come to him from their sinfulness. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Before I pray a prayer on behalf of all of us, I would encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer. Perhaps you are single and very much discontent Talk to the Lord about that. Perhaps you are married and wish you weren't. Talk to God about that. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Talk to God about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that seems so bizarre at first reading, but as we listen to what your meaning is in the text, we are encountered, Lord, with timeless truth. I pray this morning, first of all, for fellow Christians in the room who are single. Father, I pray that they would be encouraged today. I pray that they would come to see themselves as you see them not as strange, not as outcast, not as odd, not as outside your protective care and plan, but as adopted sons and daughters welcomed into your family, complete and whole in you already. Pray that they would see they are not, in fact, alone. For Christ, you are with them, and they have family here in their church. I pray, Father, that they would pursue being worthy men and worthy women, and that by your grace, according to your power, in your timing, if you would have them to become married, that you would bring along, God, 
another worthy man or another worthy woman that they might enjoy the gift of marriage. And if not, if you have given the gift of singleness, then I pray, Lord, that there would become a state of peace and contentment in that reality. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters here in the room, fellow Christians who are married, God, where we need to repent, help us, guide us, that we might ask for forgiveness. Where we have been treating marriage as simply nothing more than a mechanism through which to have a companion and have fun and are not taking serious the picture of what marriage is supposed to be, Christ and the church, the gospel put on display. Father, I pray you'd convict husbands to lovingly lead. I pray you'd convict worthy wives to graciously, intelligently, lovingly follow. Father, we ask that as a church, you would help us to love each other well, whether single or married. For in Christ, the protective wings of God have come over us, welcoming us through the gospel into a new family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.